Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And welcome to Coppola Connections, the podcast in which I will be shaking every branch of the Coppola family tree to answer the ultimate question. Are they the greatest film family of all time? And in part, getting to know Nicolas Cage a little bit better by understanding the family in which he came from. I won't be doing this alone, however. Each week I'll be joined by a guest as we go through each film from each member of the family's filmographies to get a better understanding of who and why they are. Seeing as today's date, the 7th of April, is Francis Ford Coppola's birthday, I thought that would be no better place to start. So we are starting with The Conversation from 1974. To join me is Rich Nelson from the always fantastic Betamax Video Club podcast. As it's Francis Ford Coppola's birthday, I thought I'd give you guys a present. So for this episode, you'll have access to the Patreon bonus questions however if you'd like to support the podcast go over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod despite the change in direction for this podcast one thing that hasn't changed is we will be going through these films in forensic detail so the regular spoiler warnings do still apply so if you haven't seen this film do be sure to check out a handy document in the show notes that will tell you if and where this film is streaming so it's time to put on your see-through rain max Set your recording devices to record and get your saxophone saxing as we make some Coppola connections. December 2nd, 1 p.m., shopping bag, unit A. December 2nd, 1 p.m., parabolic, unit B. December 2nd, 1 p.m., city of Paris, unit C. On this episode, we're looking at Francis Ford Coppola's... ...1974 paranoid surveillance thriller, The Conversation. The Conversation. Nominated for three Oscars in 1975, unfortunately, Francis lost out to himself to a little-known film called The Godfather Part Two. 
Joining me to piece together this mystery and get lost in Harry Cole's silky saxophone tones is Baseball Club podcast host. Is Betamax Video Club podcast host, Rich Nelson. How are you, Rich? I'm very good. Uh, thank you for bringing me on in this secret squirrel mission. Uh, it's nice <laughs> to be hidden away listening. So before we, yeah, before we get into talking about the conversation, it, well, the conversation, is it is it basically the story now of like a podcaster? Do you know what I mean? It's a guy sat in a dark room putting together some some audio to make sure he's got the best quality like I, I don't know how it affected you but for me i was like i feel i feel i feel harry cool right now. um i funnily enough i think you've been spying on me because you've seen my notes I, i've actually written that he's podcasting because uh we've got a guy who's <laughs> obsessed with audio quality um i mean i guess some podcasters don't care quite so much about these things they'll uh put out any old rubbish but this guy this man is very particular about what he does he's uh he makes his own gadgets. He's so keen. You know, he doesn't like the stuff the conventions offer. He doesn't buy any old rubbish from Argos. He makes his own stuff. Perfect. Well, before we get too deep down the um, conversation rabbit hole, when did you first become aware of the Coppola family? Was it a specific family member? Or, yeah, when did you become aware of them as an entity that there was this, like, kind of crime family of cinema um well i think as as a crime family as, as you put it it was probably again maybe quite usefully seeing uh, the godfather 2 which i saw before i saw the first one i was probably nine or ten because obviously that's completely suitable for kids and my dad didn't care it was on <laughs> quite late at christmas and i watched it and again just blown away by the film and you know, as you, as you get older and you watch more, you know, watching those, particularly the first two, over and over again. And it was only then sort of when you become a little bit more aware and exploring a little bit more, you realise that, oh, my God, Rocky's wife is a Coppola. Um, you know, and then it starts unravelling from there and all these different, the legs of the spider come out because you realise how far this family go into Hollywood. Um you know, this isn't just a director, this is everyone involved. And half the films on my DVD shelf have probably got some couple of footprint on them somewhere. Well, yeah, there's a really interesting thing that from doing research, I found like there are people of, as they marry into the family, it's like their luck changes. So like Spike Jones, for instance, kind of like was, was ticking along by like doing music videos. And then it happened to be, once he married Sophia Coppola, it was like being John Malkovich is out, and then it's kind of like bang, like his his feature debuts out, and then it's like it goes on from there, and then eventually, at least Oscar nominated, and there's like yeah, there's there's so many like it's something crazy. Like I think together there's over twenty five nominations for people who have been involved in the the Coppola family. There's over. 10 wins for them there's like that they're one of three families to have i think like or at least yeah they're they're the second family ever to have two general like three generations of oscar winners uh the other being the houston family so angelica houston her father and his father are all oscar winners and it's yeah in 
in the Coppola's, it's it's even one better because it's Carmine Coppola, Francis Coppola, and then Sophia and Nicholas Cage Coppola as well. So it's like this whole crazy, uh, I don't know, ordeal. Oh, oh, yeah, it's it's a crazy family, right? I think so. And and you think whereas in in the UK we're stuck with the foxes and and that debacle. But, um, you know, when you think that even in the South Park movie where they made this joke about the Arquettes and the Baldwins being bombed as a kind of American-Canadian war, there's a link there to the Coppolas because of the Arquettes. And you yes. think, like, you can't go too far without <laughs> stepping into that world somehow. And, uh, you know, when you think of these families and, and you know, you've said Houstons and Coppolas, and, and you think, you know, yes, they're a family within themselves. And then it goes off. You've got the Shires, the Schwartzmans and everything else, you know, and, and then those who are related by marriage. And sort of coming back to the core of it, when you look at what Francis Ford Coppola did, you know, as at the beginning of it and how it's built on from there. It's just a, it's an amazing story of how, you know, the, the, it goes beyond nepotism because there's so much skill there. This isn't just because mm-hmm. of their name. There is so much that's done on a technical level that makes it go beyond, oh, he's a coppola, he'll fine. I mean, Nicholas Cage changed his name. He did fine for himself. You know, this this is the sort of this is where we are. Well, there was a slight bit, bit of nepotism involved in Nicolas Cage's career. He, yeah, there's at least there's at least three films in his early career which <laughs> is like, Uncle, can you please put me in one of your films? Uh, mm. But but then again, like uh, Nicolas Cage auditioned for The Outsiders, and Francis said no. So he does have some morals in regards to like, if you're right for the role, I'll give it to you. But, like, you're not right for this. I've got Tom Cruise with his crooked teeth. I'll have him in The Outsiders, please. Um, so you've already answered my second question, which was what was the first Coppola family film you saw? And that was The Godfather Part Two. obviously released the same year as The Conversation. And I think it's a good way to put this film in context that this film only really exists because the success of the godfather basically made francis ford coppola the king of hollywood and could have whatever he wanted because at the time was the highest grossing film of all time and kind of had this script sat on the back burner since 1966 and kind of said to paramount like if you if you let me make this small film i will make your sequel that you that you're begging for basically so um yeah what like like what do you what, what do you kind of think about like the kind of inception of this film um i mean this is the kind of thing that i i read somewhere that this is what coppola saw as his main original film i mean mm-hmm. i've read the book of the godfather and i mean it's an epic tome you know covering both of the the two movies um and this it seems quite I think is one of those things that's, that's quite clever. It touches at a larger scale, but you know, in all reality, this is about one person and how, you know, certain huge parts of this film would probably work quite well as a stage play. I mean, maybe not the opening sequence, but, um, you know, going into where he wanted to go. And, and this is a story that because of the success of the Godfather, he's been able to, you know, attract, Gene Hackman, Oscar winner, John Cazale. He's got, 
you know, premium quality actors in here. And am I allowed to talk about the person who makes a significant cameo at the end? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you've got Robert Duvall at the end, the the director of the company. Um, you know, these are people that if the Godfather hadn't existed or if something had happened differently and we'd gone down the kind of, you know, to use an awful film, sliding doors moment where this had come out and it had not done very well because no one had heard of anything or heard of the people involved. And yet with this, it's just looking at it now, you think, wow, you know, he's put that cast together. I didn't say the name Harrison Ford either. This is <laughs> where, <laughs> you know, you're looking at a film that it's like a lot of stories, you know, if, if that film hadn't existed, then that film wouldn't have happened. And this whole sort of chain reaction thing. Um, and, you know, just watching it now and yes, it's, you know, 45 plus years old and yet the principles behind it still work fairly well today i mean obviously the technology is different but you know you're talking about a man who does surveillance and becomes paranoid as a, as a result i mean it doesn't matter if you've got a mobile phone or access to the internet or anything essentially if you're in that world this is still a human emotion a human reaction mm -hmm. to being involved in that world and the whole ethics around it and i mean in his case he's a private contractor he doesn't even work for a government agency so i it's i mean the, the way it's written the way it's put together it's just i mean for me it's, it is a perfect film and you know watching it again last night it just you sit there going you know wow it's there are parts of it that aren't particularly subtle but it's francis ford coppola and gene hackman you don't need it to be well, yeah, we'll get we'll get to some certain scenes in a bit more depth in a bit. But before we do that, um, there's a few questions I want to ask you for the OG fans, for the people who've followed me from the start. And the first one is a bit of a left turn. Are you a fan of the crazy man of the Coppola family, Nicolas Cage? Yeah, I, I am. I think um, I, I'm not quite the... Uh, I haven't de delved into his filmography and anything like the way you have I, I've I, I think I've I've gone beyond dipping my toe but I, you know I've got some absolute favorites and uh I it, I see his name and I'll, I'll be intrigued um you see some former A-list star names now and you know on a film and you kind of think oh here we go you know paycheck he's got a divorce he's got kids to pay for um Cage I would feel an interest in what he does even now um I've got favorites but yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of his, and I'm I'm always interested interested to see what he does. Well, yeah, it's that thing with Nicolas Cage that like, and it's I think we've seen quite recently as well that he's on what could be like a resurgence. Do you know I, mean? I think it kind of started with Mandy, that kind of like created a lot of buzz with people, but then like this year alone, like he's just had a film a premiere at Sundance with Prisoners of the Ghostland, which is getting like some great reviews and stuff like that and then he's got this meta film where he's playing himself and it's like are we getting like this are we yeah we're we getting this like cage resurgence that kind of and it, you and that's the thing he's an actor where you don't you don't know when that could come uh, i i said to you off mic that like he he very much rolls the dice on what he's doing and so a lot of the times he's obviously He's lost to the house, but like it looks like at the moment he could be on like somewhat of a winning streak. I can say this now because by the time this goes out, this um, 
it won't be under embargo. But I've seen his newest film, Willy's Wonderland, uh, which is like I thought like for I'm not sure if you've seen the trailers for it or like mm. seen any of the posters. Yeah. It is the film that it is like advertised to be. And it's like and it's like whether whether you think that looks like a good or a bad film is neither here nor there, but like it is fun. And to see Nicolas Cage do a totally silent performance is something it's like I know from following his career in depth, this is what he's been waiting for. And as somebody who has followed that kind of journey, it's like I've kind of been waiting for this, for him to kind of channel the the cabinet of Dr. Caligari or like French uh, German expressionism in the way he's acting and just do a totally silent role. It's, it's something really fascinating and like I don't know, a tactile performance, I'd say. Yeah, I mean that that trailer and and seeing the excitement around it. I mean, seeing so many people that kind of go, "Oh wow, this looks <laughs> crazy!" And it's one of those films that again, you see Nicolas Cage's attached to it, and you go, "Oh, okay, you know that that looks like something I'd like to find out more about." And and again, it's one of those that. Would I go to the cinema to see it? I don't know. But I tell you what, if that's on TV, I'm going to watch that. Because, again, you put Nicolas Cage in it, you think you're going to get something. You don't know, you might not know exactly what that's going to be, but there's a lot of actors out there and you you see their name go, oh, here we go, more of that, more of the same. Mm -hmm. And I'd see Cage's name attached to that and think, yeah, I'm I'm interested to see where he's going to take it. I think the one thing I can say about Willy's Wonderland that tells you the type of film that it is, is it is 88 minutes long. Like, it's it, it's a one-idea film, and it's like, we're going to do that one idea and move on. We're not going to waste your time. We're not going to go above our station. We're going to do what we need to do. Um. So what was the first Nick Cage film you remember seeing? Um, the first I remember seeing was Peggy Sue Got Married. And I always remember the scene where he, I think because uh, Kathleen Turner gives him the lyrics to Beatles songs and um, and it's kind of one of those Back to the Future style things. And, mm-hmm. and he decided to change it was that she loves you, ooh, 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 rather than yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, that was always, I, I always remember that being the first thing because I just, even though I wasn't a huge fan of the Beatles at the time I was just kind of went you idiot and that was kind of where it <laughs> stuck and it and it went from there and um and he was always the kind of person that you'd see on film posters and in films and stuff and it was probably when I I think I first saw The Rock when it first you know again without jumping on too many other questions that was where it kind of really set in stone for me was that but um yeah Peggy Sue Got Married I don't think I've ever seen it in its entirety since but that was always the one scene that stuck stood out in my head is that he decided he'd be better than Lennon and McCartney. Well, yeah, it's a really interesting one because obviously that is one of the films he did in the 80s with Francis Ford Coppola. And it's something I always find fascinating in the 80s as well. There's, there's like a string of directors who are like, oh, I'm going to do my film that's set in the 50s. Like It's a kind of like big thing in the 80s, whether it's Back to the Future like, do you know what I mean? Like, pet, like Francis Ford Coppola's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do my one of, I'm going to do my one of those. I think like it's a very similar time frame as well. And it's like, I think mean, we get it with every, we get it with every like generation, right? They kind of go, hmm. like now we see it with, oh, well, 
I, I feel like we're on the, the tail end of it. Like everybody doing films about the eighties. Now it's like, yeah. Jonah Hill was the first one to kind of go, I'm going to do a film called mid nineties. And it's going to be like, what? That's a period piece. That's yesterday. I think that's the thing is that you kind of think about nostalgia and, and obviously the, the eighties films that I'm quite fond of. And you think now when you look back at films, you could say, say back to the future. Now, if they did that, they'd be going back to 1991. And it's one of those things that you just, you know, again, this is, this is how old we are. I mean, we're getting old, man. But um, (laughs) when you think about, there is that craze, as you said, about how we've had TV shows, films where they go back to the eighties because it's, it's one that the people who watch those shows remember fondly. I mean, we've got Wonder Woman, Stranger Things, all that. And it's an excuse to get some, the clothes in, the music, some of the background mm-hmm. stuff, you know. And, oh, let's be funny and go and see E.T. at the cinema. Hey. But um, I think it's just strange that, you know, back then it happened. It happened before that, you know, when the whole thing about Westerns, I mean, they were all set in the past from when they were made. So, yeah. you know, it's something that's been done for years, well, forever really and and it's a rich mind to dig i suppose yeah i know i'm definitely missing out there's other there's other 80s directors i know that did 50 set films i don't know why it only like comes with it. peggy sue got married and back to the future the only two did did, did spielberg do a 50 set i don't know i guess um going back i can't remember him doing a 50s one in the 80s but then a lot of those filmmakers have gone back. I mean, Indiana Jones was set in the late thirties when that was made. Um, And even if you look at uh, George Lucas with American graffiti, what's that? That's got to be the fifties, right? Or like, yeah, I think so. Late fifties, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's just something that, you know, the filmmakers, when they've got that, you know, maybe in those cases, it's they're writing or making films about an era that they knew because it's when they kind of came of age as it were. So it's quite an easy thing to go back and tell your own version of that story um and of course if you, if you get something familiar and that nod you know nostalgia is not what it used to be but i mean i've just finished re-watching mad men which was set in pretty much the most of the 60s i mean i wasn't alive then but i loved it and it felt like i was there and mm-hmm. you know it's fantastic so we've talked about your first nick cage experience which is your favorite which is your favorite nick cage film um i'll be honest i I, i'm so torn between and we're talking about that that golden trilogy of the rock con air and face off um i'd i'm so torn i'm just gonna veer from the rock and uh, with the rock from face off i think that just about edges it purely because i think the interaction between him and connery Mm-hmm. are so good whereas i think face off i love in a different way because it's nicholas cage doing an impression of john travolta and john travolta doing an impression of nicholas cage for large parts of the film which is wonderful and brilliant and i love it um i think the rock plus i've been to alcatraz twice which was a nice fun <laughs> of touch but um i'd say the rock it's it's the kind of unofficial extra james bond film that connery did as well and and Cage with a sort of up-and-coming Michael Bay kind of finding his feet as well. It just kind of ticks a lot of boxes. I think it it works on a lot of levels, even though it's, you know, where it's going to go. It, there's no yeah. real mystery to it, but I, I will always watch it if it's on TV. There's an amazing, like, fact uh, about The Rock where, like, 
there's elements of that film that were added into the Chilcot report, uh, like where somebody used the like basically the weapons from that. Those like what essentially looked like dishwasher tablets, like <laughs> ended up getting into like a government, yeah, like a British government document about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq involving though that that weaponry and it's like the, the scope of film can have the fact that it like got to the point where it like seeped into real world event like you, you obviously don't have to comment on this but like i think they were looking for for any excuse to invade iraq so somebody was probably watching uh the rock and went you know what Yep, we'll have that. Saddam Hussein's got a load of those. Well, I think there was a phase <laughs> of, at the time of films where nerve gas, those kind of agents, mm-hmm. were the weapon of choice. There was kind of, it's, it's strange how weaponry becomes a fashion, but um, yeah. those kind of ideals became popular at the time. And there was that, there was Broken Arrow, I mean, maybe the year before that. Um, but yeah, I think the fact that the rock was so popular and, and in this country as well, probably partially because of Sean Connery yeah, yeah. and it had a very visual weapon, you know, a lot of the tense scenes in there and the drama were because of the handling of these personal tablets where, <laughs> you know, and they looked like, you know, marbles and stuff. And it was very intricate and, you know, don't touch the sides, all that. And there was that, which I suppose if you're doing an inquiry into Chilcott was the death of the scientist, wasn't it? And, um, you know, you, you sit I, it, it, it might not be Chilcott. I might, I might have just plucked. Oh no, I think, I think it, he was the one yeah. who came with the weapons of mass destruction, and oh. he died as a result. Yeah, Doctor Doctor David Kelly, I think his name was, and um, and he came away. You know, and they, this is all this stuff. You know, this is how these films seep into consciousness, and then you've got Nicolas Cage calling people <laughs> butthole and stuff in a film. <laughs> you know, absolutely brilliant. Just you know, it's that's for me is my perfect cage film although i will have to give a a cursory nod i recently watched moonstruck for the first time and found it how can i put it enchanting oh like I, i'm i'm really holding out because i saw that recently got a criterion release in the us mm. and i'm like i know there's a blu-ray release in the uk and i'm like i'm just holding out for that like it's this thing i've got this obsession to own every cage film on physical media but now it's like this thing of like i need to own it on like the best possible version it can be whether it's like the eureka copy of rumble fish or the the indicator version of birdie or something like that it has <laughs> to be like if it could be the creme de la creme it, it will have to be that um yeah, and well, I think that, with a Criterion release, you'd have pure quality extras on there as well. I mean, in, in exactly, yeah, cage like that would be a, and that you know, I mean, we talked about it, the the chemistry between him and Cher, you know, the fact that when she went to win her Oscar, she went with someone who was very much uh, Nicholas Cage in all but name. So, uh, well, there's an amazing there's like to 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 pull it back round to Sean Connery. There's an amazing bit of footage of. Cher and Nicolas Cage presenting Sean Connery with the Oscar for yeah. best yeah best uh, I think it's best actor right for The Untouchables uh, 1988 like Oscars it would have been 
And like they look like they've walked off the set of Moonstruck straight onto the stage at the Oscars to present. And they've got that, that they've still got that like, I don't know, what I can only describe as like horny like the gentleman is kind of burgeoning on like like horny but like agitated energy that those two have in that film and it, yeah is enchanting and it's a, a beautiful beautiful film to watch this is a world of hidden mics and two-way mirrors a world where nothing is private you think we can do this later in the week Harry Call is an expert. The best there is. Let me tell you something about Harry Call. The best bar none. I'll drink to that. Best what? The best bugger on the West Coast. What about me? He can bug anybody, anytime, anywhere. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. It was the hell of a scandal, too. Look, did you see him? The man with the hearing aid, like Charles. He's been following us all They're not people to him, just voices. Three people were murdered, that's all. He doesn't know them, and they don't know him. Uh, it had nothing to do with me. I mean, I just turned in the tapes. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I've been involved in some work that I think, I think will be used to hurt these two young people. Responsible. I, I'm not responsible. I'm... You're not supposed to feel anything about it. You're just supposed to do it. Be careful, Harry. You're just supposed to listen. Not look. Not feel. Not care. Harry Call in The Conversation. There is nothing private about The Conversation. Listen. My name is Harry Call. Can you hear me? So when did you first see this film? Um, I'd probably say about 15 years ago. I think it was um, one of those phases where I was going through kind of filling major holes in my film history and knowledge, which I'm still filling to this day but um <laughs> i i think there, there was an awful lot about it around um the, the the idea of surveillance being this sort of overarching thing and even though this was a 1974 film how the the principles of it were the same there was a lot of stuff going on at, at work and, and how the idea that essentially a film about one man and his kind of struggles to deal with his work, you know, they're, they're universal to some degree. You know, you kind of think about, you know, whatever you do, is your work going to impact on someone? And 
I think I was on a bit of a Gene Hackman binge as well. I've been watching The French Connection and I mean, one of my favourite films, Superman, you know, all these 70s films where Hackman's just absolute gold dust in. And to watch him put in a performance that's kind of slightly understated compared to those other two. But I think watching it, you know, maybe it was part of me thinking I should watch more serious films and not mm-hmm. you know, fewer Star Wars movies and stuff. But um, uh, yeah, and, and since then I've watched it countless times because it's easy to watch. There's there's a lot of kind of interactions between them that, you know, it's not special effects. It's not this huge kind of overblown blockbuster thing, which, you know, sometimes you need that kind of to bring you down after watching Star Wars 12 or, or whatever it is, you need that to come <laughs> back to. Um, I mean, I this film, yeah, fill, fills all those boxes for me. So to put this film in some kind of context, uh, Francis Ford Coppola said the, the idea for this came about after watching uh, Michelangelo Antonioni's blowout and kind of like being inspired by that about like a, a man who like could be on the fringes of like, do you know what I mean like discovering something and talking to you mentioning Star Wars uh, Irvin Kushner the director of Empire Strikes Back about at the time what like microphone technology was up to and then like uh, yeah as I mentioned earlier this like he had this script in 1966 and I think it was after he did Finian's Rainbow said this is gonna be my next film and then it didn't. It it wasn't. He did the Rain People. He did the Godfather, and then eventually got to the conversation. Um, but like, what are your favourite scenes in this film? So like, like, well, let let's start at the beginning. What do you think of this this opening sequence on Union Square? I think it sets the tone so well in that you know, it's um yeah. it sits there. I mean, it, it's you don't need a lot of exposition. You don't need too much. You can sit there and think, right, there's obviously an operation going on. Perhaps the only question you're left wondering is, is this a government thing or is this not? We find out later, you know, he's a private contractor, but we're watching this couple meandering around Union Square in San Francisco. And you're thinking about what it is, you know, there's people watching them. There's that shifty, the, the trade craft of following and not following and having you know, they fought the guy with the hearing aid. And there's a bit of the, the tension where you obviously know that they're being spied on. Mm-hmm. And there's elements in there that suggest that are they aware of it? Are they sort of wise? You know, she says, oh, he's been following me at one point. And we find out later on, you know, that the things that we hear, the things we don't hear become very important as well. And I think that's a lot of what you forget in film sometimes is that you need that subtlety of it's just as important as what you don't see, what you don't hear, because it will come, it'll come back to be very important later. And something I think I've only realized in the last couple of times I've seen it, and particularly most recently was how words and phrases that were said and that you hear they they become different over the course of the movie. You hear them differently and it's not just because you know what's happening they were actually filmed or recorded differently to sway you, to, to help you on that journey alongside Harry Cole. And I think that's such a clever way of doing it. And I know it's been done in other ways, but you know, you're, you're in that position where you're listening to what these people say. And 
I know Harry's job is to make it as clear and crisp and and to make that podcast really pop in your ears. <laughs> but it's um, you know, he's got a job to do. He doesn't care, and you know why would he? You know, he's getting paid to to do a job, and it's only later on that we become clear why. But that scene is referred to and flashback to and clipped so many times throughout the film that it is that pivotal you have to get it right and Coppola did well there's like a like you say about how that kind of initial setup like does it so well I think like the kind of setup of this whole film is done like perfectly and like a perfect example of that is his in like the first interaction we have between Harry Cole and Stan it really sets up their dynamic perfectly well that we've got Stan like and we have the women like coming to look at the mirrored windows in the side of their van and Stan's very much like taking photos just like he sees it as a job he sees it as a bit of fun and then we kind of get Harry Cole who's very biting very serious man he's like stop that Stan like we gotta get on with the job it's not and like he's asking him questions about oh what are they talking about and he's like it, it, it doesn't matter like we're here to do a job or whatever and it's like and then yeah we're introduced to Paulie the guy who with the hearing aid who but like that that opening scene um from doing like yeah, some research stuff like that, was essentially recorded and filmed as if they were doing that actual surveillance job so like they had the cameras up with the guys who were in the windows they had the sound like to, to put together that sound and i think a person who really needs like some some massive props on this film is water uh merch who does the yeah who did like this is a film as well that is <laughs> the inception of the phrase sound designer because i think they had like there's two or three editors on this and for like Walter Merch was essentially an editor on the film, but because he had, bit like be, because there was like other people involved, he needed another credit to do with like union, very boring stuff. So they have they essentially made up the sound designer uh, credit for him for this film, and it's like that that open sequence and like the first time i watched this i was like it's is my tv broken it's something like off with the sound on this and it's kind of like when you start to realize what is going on it's it's just so captivating i think like you mentioned it earlier about that whole thing of surveillance like as much as yeah the technology has changed the fears are still very much the same right uh, well yeah i mean you're essentially infringing someone's privacy where you know, you're listening, again, to their conversation, but, you know, you're finding out about these people. There's so much intru intrusive information you're going to get about their everything. You know, you, you can't decide what they're going to say and what they're not going to say. You know, you're going to hear everything. Well, hopefully you're going to hear everything. Um, you know, and this is where we touch on, you know, I'd wonder how far this film would go into, say, The Wire, which was so popular because a lot of The Wire was around phone tap surveillance, that kind of thing, where the same kind of technologies were in use, but, you know, they were the police. They were actually, you know, it was on the other side. They're looking for evidence. 
but we're looking at what's important here you know the the fact that this essentially private man is being paid a lot of money to listen to the private conversations of other people and the idea is that hopefully you know i mean if you're paying i think it's $15,000 in the 70s for this you're going to get someone who's going to listen to it clean it up make it a presentable audio file and walk away um but of course you're dealing with human beings here you're dealing with someone who as we find out, has obviously had an issue in in a previous role where people may or may not have died. <laughs> and, you know, he's got a conscience. He's a Catholic. You know, we know this because he goes to confession. Um, he becomes worried about what he's hearing because this is potentially going to have an impact. And, you know, th- this just shows that you can't be a robot. You can't just ignore this kind of stuff. You hear it, you know, you're going to either form a judgment or you're going to have a fear or something's going to kick in where do you try and protect this person do you are you trying to preserve the best evidence possible or are you just trying to make a good audio file i don't know but there's um you know there's a lot of ethics here as well it's not just the kind of the inside slow mental torture of one man there's a lot of ethics around here and i know when the film came out and when it was being produced you know we we're talking the massive watergate era as well where surveillance and wiretaps and all that stuff was i wouldn't say commonplace but it was certainly that was the news that was the biggest thing in the world at the time certainly in the western world is how surveillance was used to essentially bring down a president um you know and we're we're watching gene hackman do it listening to a couple in a in a square but it's the same principles at the end of the day yeah definitely and i think this film very much gets roped into being like an answer to Watergate, but ha- like was in production and kind of came out as that whole thing was unraveling at the time. So it's like, it's just this weird, like, and uh, and obviously Francis Ford Coppola had kind of had the idea in 1966. So there's this whole like very like weird aspect to it that like I don't know he he foresaw what was going to happen in this. So. There's like some. There's one question I want to ask you about this film: is is the conversation a Christmas film? Um, well, I did actually note that because they were <laughs> there was a Christmas tree and and one of the uh, the the packages that they were using was Christmas shopping, wasn't it? So um, I, I think that could be. Uh, that could, I mean, it's, it's more Christmassy than some of the ones I've heard mentioned. But uh, there's a there's a Christmas tree in it that'll do for me. And in that opening sequence, I would, uh, yeah, I, I, I know I let it slip by, but there is the man in the yellow hat who kind of walks across camera, who like kind of, because that's the thing, when you watch this like numerous times, on that open sequence, you're kind of like trying to look out for things and pick up on things that maybe you would have missed or whatever. And the, there's a guy who walks past, and this like a very chic-looking guy in a yellow hat. Is Billy D. Williams? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so so Billy D. Oh, Williams, fantastic. Walk, walks like just gent, like breezes past the camera, like across the frame, and you're like, obviously knowing who Billy D. Williams is, like you're thinking, like, mm. oh, is he gonna, is he gonna crop back? Like it's been a while since the is he gonna crop back up in this film? And it's like, no. He just obviously like it's, it's early Billy D. Williams just need a bit of cash. <laughs> this is the backstory between Han Solo and Lando. Bloody hell! Perfect. Yeah, it's when they <laughs> when they lived on Earth. Um, so 
are there other scenes? There must be other scenes that stick out to you. What, what are kind of like, for people who haven't said, what are the scenes we really need to get a hold of and shake down? Um, I, I think that the sequence between the convention um, and going back to Harry's workshop, um, mm. I mean, they're set in two places, but they, they feed one into the other where this convention where Harry is seen as the keynote speaker, he's very much the expert in his field. Um, we meet people that are either desperate for his recommendation or his approval. They want his name on their product because, you know, they're, I'd, I'd love to say they're aspiring surveillance equipment people, but most of them are in their 60s and 70s by the looks of it. Um, but, you know, Harry Call is the name they want to recommend, saying, yes, I use this to bug whatever. Um, but you're also meeting people that are his business rivals, the people that kind of see him as, you know, he's the big fish, they want to be better than him. And there's um, the whole scene where he's being courted and shown, oh, this is our new gadget. And and, and his rival is, um, and, and Alan Garfield plays this guy, really, he really gets under his skin. You know, he's saying, how did you do this? And they talk about this job that he did back in New York. And I know there's some reference to that. And I think they, they kind of working around the time scales of it, they're suggesting it may have been a kind of loose borrowing of, was it one of the Kennedys and Jimmy Hoffa or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it's, it's um, to do with the Teamsters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think it's sort of very loosely based on that. And there's this kind of rivalry between them, although it's a rivalry that perhaps is only seen one-sided. You know, you always see the the big fish doesn't see you all the time, but you see him as the competition. But, you know, throughout that scene, he's being pushed and provoked. And, you know, what did you do? How did you do it? Why, you know? And then there's the kind of scene about, okay, we're rivals. Why don't we become partners? And it just seems that I think that's the point where Harry Call goes from being the kind of big dog, but he gets caught out with, the surveillance pen, the mic pen that gets put in his pocket as a freebie. And it listens to the conversation between him and, and the, the blonde lady where he gets fooled and he mm-hmm. gets caught out because they play the tape in public. You know, they, I say public, there's a group of sort of seven or eight people having a little party, but he gets humiliated because he's been caught out sort of not by his own design as the other guy, but he's like, I can be got too. And I think that just goes to show from start to finish of that scene, we're talking probably 20, 25 minutes of him being, you know, the big one, you know, really the guy everyone aspires to be, but he can be got to. And it really shows that his mental state as well. He's become irritable. He's become ratty, snaps this pen in half. I think that that's, and that's the bit that I think would work perfectly on the stage because it's entirely in the workshop or that Mm -hmm. scene anyway. And it's really kind of, distinct actors with distinct characters either pushing provoking or supporting and i think it just works perfectly and and hackman kind of goes he drops his guard a little bit and gets stung well it's really interesting because hackman like has openly said that he really didn't enjoy playing harry cole because of the like the, the the character he was and like just getting into the role just meant that he like had to be this curmudgeonly guy who was very much like grumpy all the time. And that wasn't the guy he was. He was kind of like a bit of a bon vivant, like man about town and like wanted to, do you know what I mean? Like, and, 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 and like when he got to set, he would have to get in these horrible ill-fitting suits and, 
put on these gla- ill-fitting glasses and stuff like that. And Francis Ford Coppola says something really interesting in an interview that like he says he thinks that Gene Hackman might not have liked the like the the character because underneath the man that he is, he sees a bit of Harry Cole in himself. And there's like there's this thing about the the, the character of Harry Cole, and it's that. And it's I don't I've heard people say that they find it hard to relate to him, but like I I, I do see him and like I think when you get the character of Bernie Moran, the guy who is his rival and like well he's he's portrayed to be like the absolute arsehole basically. Like he's mm. just, he's this absolute bore who just he, all he wants to do is talk shop. They're supposed to be there having a good time and there's kind of that one-two punch of making Harry look like a bit of a, a fool, isn't there? There's the there's the pen, but for before then, um, he does he just pull it back slightly. But when Stan like shows them the conversation and is like going like, "How would you do this?" and then, like Harry has that kind of like really puffs out his chest and is like, "Well, what we, he takes everyone through how he." Did, how he got the conversation and there's to backtrack a little bit as well there's that like moment it's like obviously he falls out of stan but there's you see a desperation in harry when he speaks to stan at the convention and he's kind of like he's pretty much begging him to come back and work for him like that's when he's like says says to him like Oh, I think I think someone's following me. Like, I've, I've, like, like, can you please, like, can, yeah, can, like, can you, can, like, I, I, like, he's he's just he's just lost. And then he go well after Stan storms out. That's when he finds out the kind of like the the grand reveal of this film of when he's editing the tape and finds out that that horrifying line that has been hidden when he gets out that gadget and gizmo to kind of decipher what 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 he was missing all that time yeah because well it's um he'd kill us if he had the chance and this is the it's the killer line that gets hooked on throughout the film and it's the one that changes in intonation towards the end Mm -hmm. as well um and that's when, you know, we, we see that because Harry's made his own little gadgets to improve the quality of this, and he's worried that that Stan will go off and work for his rival and give away yeah. his tricks. You know, he's he builds his own stuff, and that's how he gets his his best results. And that, that part where you mentioned in the workshop where he's, you know, he is puffing out his chest, he's showing off the devices that he used, the microphone that looks like a sniper rifle, all these things. Um, and... And there is that element where, you know, Harry talks throughout about he doesn't want people to have his phone number. He's worried when, because it's his birthday and the, the bottle of wine's yeah. left inside his apartment. How did you get in? You know, all this stuff. He's such a, a deeply secretive guy. He essentially breaks up with his, I'll say, booty call girlfriend <laughs> because she asks him too many questions. I mean, we've all been there. But it's um, it's one of those things where he gives off being such a private person and perhaps you know what one feeds into the other but the fact that he has a what he thinks is a conversation with the, the lady that's recorded on the pen you know 
that's what's like I've been done again and it's what leads to the great finale of the film you know Harrison Ford has his phone number which you know I'd let him have my phone number but <laughs> he gets the phone call and basically rips his apartment apart because you know they're watching me they're watching me and he's thinking if I can do it to them they can do it to me and maybe there's a confidence issue there as well but I mean it's just such a a fantastic piece around you know what you think is a private man and and even in 1974 you know we didn't have Facebook and yet I can be got to at any time you know who really is isolated I mean it's oh god it's getting really deep but you're thinking about you know dropping off the grid and all that stuff but then you think, you know, however many, what, 25 years later, he made Enemy of the State. It's essentially a sequel to this, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. He essentially plays, like, the the, the older, more more paranoid... Har- well, on the... Yeah, he plays, ha- yeah, Harry Cool Point 2.0. But, like, um, <laughs> there's, like... There's that really weird moment that he has, like, with the the woman in his workshop, where it seems like... His like his good work essentially turns him on, where like he's pl- he's essentially playing the tape as other like of, of the conversation that other people would like put on some Barry White. He's like, ah, oh, listen to how good I am at editing <laughs> some audio. Like, check this out, baby. Like, or you know when he says. He'd kill us if he got the chance. That was me, baby. That like, it's, and, <laughs> but like, it's a, this kind of double-edged finger. It's like he's horny and sad at the very same time. Because uh, aren't we all? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that that's very much a twenty twenty-one vibe. Is being horny and sad at the same time. Uh, but what do you think of like this dream sequence that comes after that? This like blue tinged like. I, I well, I think it's for me. It's possibly the most we get to know Harry Cole in his most vulnerable, right? Yeah, I mean, we 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 see a lot about his. He talks about being ill as a child, and there's a lot of the vulnerability there that's probably led him down this path into where he is now. I mean, he's I think he's forty four, mm-hmm. and he's looking older, you know, and. And like he touched upon, he he dresses himself older, the way he carries himself. But, you know, he gives away a lot. It's almost a kind of, in in some ways, you'd think it was a, a way, a method of getting, earning the trust of the the lady that he's going to tell. You know, I know all these secrets about you, right? Here are some of mine. Let's build this, you know, rapport going. And then I'm going to hit you with, oh, by the way, I think the person who's your husband wants to kill you. Um, and... <laughs> There is that scene, and and it's strange because, you know, like you say, it's tinged. It's almost like he's chasing her up the moors or something like mm-hmm. that, where he's you know wants to run after and tell her all these things he's discovered, or, or you know, the fact that he's being followed by Harrison Ford on behalf of this sort of mysterious director who, you know, he obviously has his ideas about the relationship, but it's just again that that whole sequence where. You know, you're looking back 40 years, so we're saying he probably grew up in the 30s in very poor health. You know, let's be honest, it's probably quite a common thing. Um, but it's strange putting yourself in that position where someone's so private and someone who doesn't want to talk, but in a dream sequence will happily say about how he grew up 
with a limp and having to be bathed by his mother. It's a, it's a strange... I mean, it works because it doesn't take you out of the film. No. You kind of see his thought process yeah. and it describes it perfectly. But it's a, it's a, it's an interesting sort of way of seeing into his mind. One hundred percent. And there's like, there's a line that like can't help but make me laugh in that when he says like, "That was a friend of my father. For no reason, I punched him in the stomach." And the next year he died. And it's like, what? <laughs> and it's like, but it kind of like, at the same time as it is humorous, it just really compounds the fact that Harry Cole is a, is a man who kind of carries around guilt. And like, he's obviously mm. carried around this guilt for the family that died at the hands of essentially one of his surveillance jobs from before. And it was, I think you kind of get that, you get that description that a family were like skinned alive essentially because of information that he had found out. And um, yeah, before we get too like too near the end of this film, there's this, there's like a, a kind of reading I had on this. That's like, even like his hobby, like the fact that he plays saxophone over other music plays into the fact that like his personal, like his enjoyment, is almost sorting out audio. Do you know what I mean? He's looking for the frequencies that are missing in a in, in a recorded piece of music. So he's like, I'm going to play the saxophone that's like kind of missing to this piece of music. Because obviously like the one thing Harry Cole, once he like kicks off his shoes at the end of a hard day of bugging people. And we need to mention the fact that he is known as the best bugger on the <laughs> West Coast, right? <laughs> Which has a totally different meaning this side of the pond, right? Yeah, and I did make a note of that as well because I mean that that's the kind of thing that I suppose if that's your name, you leave it, love it or loathe it. But um, yeah, being, being the best bugger in the West, it's uh, I don't know if that's the sort of thing that they've had in a Western or something like that. You know, that's the name he travels under. But yeah, or it's um, or the Blue Oyster Bar. You would imagine the best bugger on the West Coast. <laughs> That's where he does his cabaret act. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it is when you talk about the sax. I mean, the music in this it is it's always there in the background. There's it's not overdone. It's not pushed on you, but you always know it's there. And I think that's the thing where I found with the saxophone is that the saxophone is quite dominating in a way that his character certainly isn't. Mm -hmm. And when you compare it to Popeye Doyle in the French Connection, who's quite a bolshy, aggressive person. And, you know, that's what you think, oh, yeah, he'd play the saxophone, yeah. And yet Harry Call is this introverted, doesn't want to let anyone in. And, and the saxophone to that is an antithesis because it comes out, you know, it, he's within his safety net, he's in his own mm -hmm. four walls. I can play the saxophone and, and as you say, add the layers to the music that's actually quite low-key. Well, yeah, and like Gene Hackman actually learnt the sax for this film, and it's like another thing that's like I tip my fucking hat to you, Mister Mister Hackman. Like that's absolutely amazing. So, um, let's push on. They'd CGI that in now, I think. Uh, let 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 let's push on forward to like when he wakes up, the tape's gone, and he gets that call from Stet, uh, Harrison Ford's character, to kind of like they say we've got the tape. We're like we couldn't we couldn't trust you essentially to not destroy it. 
and then he turns up to the office and as you mentioned earlier we were introduced to bobby deval as i call him uh, <laughs> as as the 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 owner of the company who's hired him for this job and um we get that scene work. We get that like it's it's a very like even to watch it, very awkward scene of him in that in that office room. But then like it's just really plants the seed for the tension, which is like the last quarter of this film, right? Yeah, because I mean, if you're in that office and you're I mean, it's. I suppose these days it would be a sex tape, wouldn't it? That you're that yeah. you're listening to, um, and now you're listening to his wife and some bloke basically, you know, having an affair of even if it's just the, the emotional affair because there's no physicality going on, and you're in there, you're sitting there with Robert Duvall, Harrison Ford, and Gene Hackman are sitting there listening to this tape, and Harry's obviously sitting there counting his money, and Robert Duvall, who this is the introduction to him, you know, he's not credited at all. You're not expecting him. And of course, you know, this is two years after The Godfather where he's like huge. Um, so you see him and he, oh, bloody hell, wow. And, you know, he's stroking that dog quite menacingly as well. And you're sitting there thinking he's this, you know, just the way he's portrayed. He's obviously, you know, the, the head of this, we'll call it an evil corporation, <laughs> you know, for that kind of thing. But he's able to throw 15 grand at someone to make a recording of his wife and her lover. And... You know, there's this menacing thing where if you're Harry Cool, you're thinking, yeah, I know the line that was said, you know, he'd kill us if he gets the chance. And he's sitting there stroking his dog like a kind of Mr. Burns type figure. And you're sitting there with your money. And, and But you know enough. And this is the thing where he's because, or inspired because he's so good, he knows the hotel room that they're going to be meeting up in. He knows all this stuff. So it's kind of, it's not just enough for him to walk away. He has to go there and almost feed that monster that's raging inside of him. It's like an incredible Hulk type thing. I have to know what happens next. This story that I've been listening to is such a page turn or I need to see where it goes. So when it comes to the hotel, like obviously like you can read this film in two ways. So obviously like it is that is a vision of like kind of the mind of a, a paranoid delusional man or what he sees is real in those moments. Cause obviously like we get the moment he falls asleep in the hotel. He kind of has like, he go, he, he, he then creeps into the room. He, he flushes the toilet and we get that kind of like something you would see like constantly in like giallo films, the toilet, up with blood and like just like mm. something that like I don't know like e even thinking about it just kind of makes it go a bit cold because it's like like you kind of get the images of Gene Hackman like recoiling in terror and do you know I mean every like it's just like toilet blood Gene Hackman terror toilet blood like back and forth and it's like yeah it's just uh it, yeah it's got it's got an element of like jarrow a jallow and high tension to it but um. What do you, what's your reading of that kind of the, that sequence there? I mean, I, I've seen those Premier Inn adverts with Lenny Henry enough <laughs> times to think that there there are horrors in every hotel room. But I think that's the thing is that where, and even right to the end of the film, you're not a hundred percent sure what's real and what's not. And I think 
you know, without stepping too far, you know, we, we see one minute there's blood, there's the hand on the partition of the balcony, and then he goes and, and the the blood came out of the toilet, and there's all these things, and then the next minute it's all clean, it's all it's all clear, there's nothing wrong, it, you know, is it the shining, is that kind of fear almost, but, um, and I think that's where, you know, I, I kind of wrote that down as a kind of, you know, what is the the reality and what isn't, because we don't know. And I think this is the point where the film almost, as you say, splits in two, because you're not quite sure. And even when we find out at the end of the film what's actually happened, you can see where Harry's going back, thinking he's almost retrofitting what's happened in the hotel room. And is he thinking, was this an accident? Was this real? You know, and, and the fact that the wording or the, the tone of that that line mm-hmm. changes it becomes almost a justification rather than a fear and everything about that whole last quarter of the film becomes is he imagining it is it real did this happen and and i think you know you can look at the hotel room and think you don't know yeah i mean he wakes up he's watching the flintstones <laughs> i mean that's you know some people's idea of hell some people's idea of heaven and you honestly can't believe what you're seeing now. You don't know inside his head yeah. because you've been there for the whole film and, you know, you're bugging toilets, you're sitting there and, you know, he's gone to these extreme lengths and yet at the end of the film, the couple get away with it. Yeah. And he's sitting there going, was this part of the plan almost? You know, it's did he, did he enable them by giving them those tapes? Um you know, if you're really sort of digging down there, but it's, uh, I, I, you do think that's where it touches into the horror side and it does, it both inspires and inspired by, you know, the, the scenes of the blood and everything, because this isn't the sort of film where you'd expect there to be a lot of blood. Yeah. And it's that thing that like, cause obviously we get that like reveal that Mr. Stett was in on it. Right. Cause Harrison Ford's character who like, yeah, I'd be remiss not to say like, his character was very much supposed to be like a very small part and Harrison Ford uh, at the time like overstated himself went out and bought himself a green suit kind of uh read the character apparently like as if he was uh, a gay gentleman like and Francis Ford Coppola after that made sure his office was like designed like got the costume department got the uh, production department to like change his office to fit that and like he was so impressed by kind of Harrison Ford's moxie that like he made the character a larger part of of the film and there's like apparently somewhere out or like the original cut of this film was four hours long uh, like four and a half hours long and we'll the the bits that are are missing sound very much like they deserve to be missing because a lot of it is about the fact that in a version of this script harry cool owned the building in which he lived in and a lot of like the the added stuff was about him and just building maintenance and dealing with other tenants and stuff like that but um yeah, when we get to the end and we get to him ripping up his apartment and stuff like that, which very much like are still 
on the back foot as to is he insane or does he have a right to have ripped up his apartment and essentially like are they buggies then and it's like it's a f- I'm like, I, 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 I loved it like, I felt like I, I, I don't mean to bury the lead on this film and like only reveal now but I love this film it's, it's great <laughs> I think there, there is that thing where you can piece it together and you think you know is he being bugged but it's also that something I thought of recently where that episode of the Simpsons where there's the Lisa builds that diorama of the beating of the hideous heart and she you know and, and he's like it's almost like is he looking for his own guilt or the justification for what he's done but I mean clearly he's he is paranoid because I mean he's even gone to the point of ripping apart his religious idols that are on the shelves and stuff and you know there's that desperation there and he, I mean immediately when the scene changes to him looking for the bugs and even when you know where it's going to go, the the lengths that he goes to, this isn't just pulling out a couple of light fittings, you know, floorboards up, plasterboard off, skirting boards off, everything is out. And then he's just sitting there playing the saxophone. It's almost like, now I'm at peace. Mm-hmm. I've destroyed everything, but I'm at peace now. I've got my saxophone. It's, um, I mean, I... I suppose that's the only time when you do wonder if those extra two and a half hours of film might have padded that out. And, <laughs> you know, is he going to have to pay back his security deposit or something like that? You know, I mean, as you say, I mean, there's two and a half hours extra where I assume it was filmed. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of films out there with scenes that you kind of, think, Oh, I'd love to see those films, those scenes, or I wonder if they'd make that better. No, no, no. leave them on the floor. So, Rich, what is your like reading of like the themes of this film and like kind of what like what is trying to tell us as an audience basically? Um, I, I think what it's trying to certainly trying to suggest to us is that you know that there is a human element to everything that we do, and while Harry's job is to collect audio in this case, you know, we can't believe everything we hear or or the mindset of what we're listening to. And I mean, it's like any conversation, not just surveillance, you know, what frame of mind are you in when you hear a certain set of words, Um, you know, and and how the tone of the message is is as important as the words. And I think, you know, we go beyond the, the paranoia, the guilt and all the feelings, you know, he's probably goes through most of the seven deadly sins at some point throughout this film. But, you know, as, everything that leads towards the end of it is that you know ultimately in the 70s you know there's the the idea that big business will always win out money is the be all and end all of everything and power corrupts and all this sort of stuff um you know the fact that the husband is dead and the wife inherits the company you know ultimately was that their end goal i presume so but you know there's collateral to everything that everything that happens there's always I mean, we we call it collateral intrusion, where inadvertent things that come out of surveillance come into play. And you learn stuff that you're not intending to do, all the personal information that you think you're going to get. You're going to get other stuff too that that feeds into what you do. And I think a lot of this goes to show that, you know, unless this is where it becomes Terminator or something where you get machines to do everything and you don't have any soul or emotion involved and any anything that a human would bring positive and negative but 
ultimately, at the end of the day, Harry's done his job. Things have happened. Had he done it differently, the same thing probably would have happened at a different time. But yeah, yeah it's um, it's difficult to read and kind of think he's just a cog in a machine. Well, I kind of have, like, I have this like, I don't know. I think this is a deeply personal film, Francis Ford Coppola, and I kind of see this as like this film as an allegory for being a director and like something that we would see with Francis Ford Coppola himself because it very much deals with this juxtaposition between the personal and professional life of Harry Cole and I think you could look at it in the, like through the lens of a director because as we see like later on especially in Francis Ford Coppola's career with Apocalypse Now where he's like willing to throw himself wholeheartedly into that like process of directing the film that maybe like his personal life and like things around him will suffer and you, you like there's there's scenes that really like play to that like we get the moment when like he's with his booty call girlfriend and like do you know what I mean like and he's with his friends and you can you can almost like swap out him in the workshop with with that group of guys to him with Spielberg and George Lucas and stuff like that and that kind of rivalry that you would feel as a director and that thing of like it's almost playing to that thing of like how much will you suffer for your art in that like do you know what I mean like just to get the best film you can possibly get like you, you might ruin other aspects of your life and I think that's very much what we see from Harry Cole is that like he puts so much stock and weight into his work that like we realize he's got he's got no one right he, like the the woman he wants to be the, the, the woman he clearly wants to be with because he tries to reach out to her at one point and she's changed her number like he, the the only friend he basically has is Stan and he's kind of a bit indifferent to him like given the chance he will go elsewhere and it's like, how much really is that worth? And then it's like the thing of like, by by kind of doing his job so well, all he's done is he's, if anything, he's ruined lives. That that has as opposed to getting self gratification or making other people happy at the end of the day. And it's just it's like, I don't. When you look at it through that lens, it's got this really like kind of like bittersweet thing and if, like the only the, the thing that kind of switched that in my brain is from hearing Francis Ford Coppola in an interview saying that the thing that made Blowout stand to him stand out to him was the fact that it was a deeply personal film and I was like this must like there must be some through line between Francis Ford Coppola and Harry Cole in some aspect right yeah, and it's funny when you talked about that that group of directors because I know I, I'm not sure if they were given a name and all these groups have got names like Gang of Five that sort of thing. But mm. when you know you, you watch documentaries about say the origins of Star Wars and and you see about how Lucas was kind of both wanting the approval of and seeking to lord it over. I mean, bear in mind this gang was you know Spielberg, Coppola, Scorsese, and I think Brian De Palma as well. Yeah, and he was trying to get you know, when he showed them Star Wars, 
it was kind of I'm as good as you and it was like this scene in in the workshop where it is bragging and then also the the self-doubt as well because I mean at this point you know they had mostly had made films that had become huge things and Lucas was still I mean he'd made American Graffiti but he was still on that cusp of doing his opus as it were and you can imagine you know the the egos in that room and and nose is out of joint and you wonder I and mean, you hope you know the relationships have, have, have remained intact um i mean that, that maybe that's an ideal circumstance but it is interesting when you think about that the way it works because in any you know that there is that kind of you know to, to use a, a current term a toxic masculinity you know even harry call who be, who is an introvert who is this grumpy he has that kind of degree of look at me around him because of his skill I mean it is like being at a podcast convention or something you know he's like, <laughs> look at me look at what I've done you know just to to go full meta and all that but it's it's that thing where even this man if you get him in the right circumstance in the right circle he will become the show-off he will become the target yeah. and there's that element to everyone you know no matter what your hobby no matter what your interest is someone somewhere has that in them that they will become the Billy Big Bollocks where they want to be the man for five, 15 minutes, whatever it is. And this is Harry calls and he gets humiliated after it. Yeah. There's a weird parallel between like Harry cool being Francis Ford Coppola and Bernie Moran being George Lucas, because they kind of had this thing that like, um, in the way that Harry Cole creates all his own devices to use and stuff like that and wants to like be out on his own, is that is exactly what Francis Ford Coppola always dreamed of. And that is what like American Zoe trope was all about, is the fact that Francis Ford Coppola wanted to be out of the studio system of of Hollywood and do something completely different. Whereas like you, you've got like George Lucas who wanted to like kind of manipulate that system and do what he did and like they, they nearly worked together so there's this very like I think when you look at it through the lens of like it being a filmmaker it works so well just this like it's that thing of like how do I take something that is deeply personal and making it on this like dramatic thriller level basically because it's like if if he had made a film about a couple of directors having a bit of a spat, it would have been like, what a fucking circle jerk this is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's the thing, you know, the benefit of hindsight and history, we can look back at this and see all these kind of threads that we're looking at yeah. now. You know, we've had however many years now looking back and all these inside documentaries and everything where, you know, all of a sudden you're seeing in the background of, you know, Spielberg doing Jaws, there's probably Coppola there mm-hmm. prodding him somewhere going, yeah, I'm the shark, I'm the shark, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you know, even if it's just, well, banter. I hate um, but there, there is that kind of thing where get five blokes in a room, you know, okay, one yeah. of them will start alphaing. I will say this now on the first episode of this Coppola Connections journey, that, like a book that has been absolutely monumental 
to kind of my understanding, especially of this kind of 70s period, is Easy Rider's Raging Bull that kind of really goes into these dynamics of these kind of new Hollywood directors and like what they were doing. But as we start to wind things down, Rich, um, w- did you manage to find any Coppola connections to this film? Any any connections that kind of draw this film to another family member or even Francis Ford Coppola himself? Um, well, weirdly, I kind of thought, and, and one of my interests um, is Superman. And I can kind of think of two, really, where you think of this would obviously, with Gene Hackman being Lex Luthor, um, we have both the tinge that Nicolas Cage was set to be Superman himself at one point. Um but also the other one that I was thinking was that how Gene Hackman was Lex Luthor in the two Superman films that were written by Mario Puzo, who wrote The Godfather. So, and again, the apparently the original treatment of the Superman films was going to be about five or six hours as well, and they got whittled Amazing. down, and that had Mar- <laughs> you know, bear in mind that had Marlon Brando in it and all those connections. Mm-hmm. So, um, I thought that was just a strange thing, and it's I mean it's a very tight circle. I'd like to think it didn't go too far; it stayed seventies, but. Um, you know, Lex Luthor will always be Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman will always be Lex Luthor. And, um, yeah, that that just seemed to kind of fit very nicely. I, I didn't want to go too wide on that one. So let me whittle through a lot of people who went on to work with some Coppola family members in a section I like to call Coppola Connections. So John Cazale worked with Francis Ford Coppola three times in total. This, Godfather's Part 1 and 2. The small boy in the church in the conversation is Francis Ford Coppola's late son, Gina Carlo Coppola. Harrison Ford worked with Francis Ford Coppola twice, the second being Apocalypse Now. As you mentioned, Gene Hackman was Lex Luthor in Superman. Nicolas Cage actually voiced Superman in Teen Titans Ghosts in the Movies. A very tenuous link is Gene Hackman starred in The Royal Tenenbaums, which was directed by Wes Anderson, who both Roman Coppola and Jason Schwartzman would work with many times. Um, so Frederick For- uh, Forrest, who is the gentleman, like uh, as part of the, I think his name's Alan, a part of the conversation, would work with Francis Ford Coppola on five films: uh, Hammett in 1982. Apocalypse Now, One from the Heart, and Tucker, The Man and His Dream. This is one of five films Robert Duvall, who is all like with Francis Ford Coppola, and is also in Gone in 60 Seconds with Nicolas Cage. Walter <laughs> Murch worked with Francis Ford Coppola nine times. Sidney Williams and uh, Harrison Ford are both in American Graffiti, which is produced by Francis Ford Coppola. Michael Higgins, who tragically died last year due to COVID com- uh, complications, uh, would go on to be in Rumblefish, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Black Stallion, which was scored by Carmine Coppola. And Synecdoche, New York, which was di- uh, directed by Charlie Kaufman, who wrote Human Nature starring Patricia Arquette, adaptation starring Nicolas Cage and Being John Malkovich, which was directed by Spike Jones. Some Coppola connections. 
The DOP what a start. film is Bill Butler, who worked on Rocky 2, 3, and 4. Doug Von Koz, the set director, was a prop master on American Graffiti and the lead man in the costume department on Tucker the Man in His Dreams for Francis Ford Coppola in 1998. The production designer on this worked with the Coppola family 15 times, 14 of them being with Francis Ford Coppola and one being with Roman Coppola. And the costume designer worked with Coppola four times, one of them being with John Swartzman, the DOP of Benny and June. There we go. There's all the Coppola connections for this film. This is episode one, Rich. This is episode one. Um, We're going deep. Now on to scoring this film. And in honour of the Coppola family and their love for wine, uh, what would be a perfect wine pairing for this film? Um, well, as we discussed previously, I think that the perfect wine for this would be a red wine left behind your locked, triple locked front door. Perhaps in, <laughs> there'd be a slight wicker element to the bottle as well. It wouldn't be a standard traditional, what we call traditional wine. It would be the sort that uh, low budget Italian restaurants put candles in when they're empty. Yes. Um, yes. And perhaps you might you might take around to a booty call on your birthday <laughs> just to celebrate. Um I mean, seriously, I mean, th- this film has, you know, and again, I, I'm no wine expert at all other than I drink it sometimes, but this film is so deep and and you don't even need to dig that far. There are so many layers to it and it's one of those you can, depending what angle you come to it as well, I mean, do you come to it straight from the bottle? Do you go with a glass? However, which way you come to it, you're going to see something differently you can drink it over and over again, you'll taste something differently. That Everything about this film, it's not a linear thing. Mm-hmm. There's something, there's something so subtle within there. Every time you'll find something else. And yes, if it's uh, wrapped in some garish red wrapping paper as well, that'd be uh, just as handy. Well, it's perfect you mentioned that because even the way down to what you mentioned earlier about the, the kind of, you don't even notice the fact that They've obviously done several takes of the gentleman delivering the fateful line, like he'd kill us if he had the chance. And it's like that thing of like it it bears repeat viewing over and over again. And it's it's just so enjoyable. I've watched it twice in the last like couple of months and it's I, it's really great. To use a wine phrase, and I only say this because I think I've heard it on telly or something. It's a very full-bodied film, um, <laughs> so so how much if 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 this film were a bottle of wine, how much would you be paying for this? Is this is this a house? Is this lower end of the scale? Is this a mid-range or is this top dollar? Are you turning over the page of the wine menu essentially to pick out this film? I think you would for this film. You would go that extra mile because this isn't a this isn't something that you'd have as an accompaniment. This isn't something that you have as atmosphere. It's not something that you just turn up at a party. You know, this mm-hmm. is, you know, you get those cheap wines you buy, you turn up at a party, they leave it there and then drink the expensive one. This is the expensive one that someone steals that you take because this is what, if you're a connoisseur, and this makes me sound like a right wanker, but 
this is something <laughs> that you sit down and watch. This is not something that you sit down and have in the background. You can't. You, mm-hmm. you can't have this on. Even if you've seen it 20 times, the joy of it is knowing how it goes. You come back to it, you see something else, you hear something differently. And I think with this film, you have to really take it in and you have mm-hmm. to enjoy it. You have to immerse yourself in yeah. it because, you know, this isn't some cheap plonk. This is yeah. the stuff that you really need. You, you've got to invest in it. You know, you can't have this on when you're doing the ironing, when you're making a deal. You've got to sit down and give two hours to on this film. Yeah, yeah it's, it's um, not a bottle of blue nun, is it? No, no. I mean, there's. I mean, I don't think is there a black tower in here. Maybe that's where they they take the audio from the, the beginning. But I think you've got to sit down and look at it and think. If you're going to make that investment, if you're going to sit there and take it seriously, you buy a decent bottle of wine mm-hmm. because you take wine seriously. This isn't multiplex wine. This is art house wine. Yes. That's not, I, I couldn't put it better myself. So, uh, which leads me on perfectly to my next question, and I, I think we all know the answer by now. Would you recommend people watch this film, Rich? Absolutely. Um, I think there's just a lot. F- I mean, it's no, there's no, there's very little comedy in there. Let's be honest. But everything is. I mean, it's the way it's made, the way it's shot, the way Gene Hackman portrays this person mm-hmm. who's going through. I can't call it a journey of sorts, but I think everything apart, even the the score and the music, it sits perfectly. It's not in your face. It the the atmosphere of it just works absolutely spot on. Everything comes together nicely, and I think at the end of it, and and if it makes you want to go back, not because you enjoyed it, but because you think, did I catch that? Do I did yeah. I miss a bit? You know. It gives you that rewatchability because you need to go and watch it again because you'll learn something else, you'll see something differently, and that's what a good film should do. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting you mentioned that score. It's, it's a thing I didn't mention. It's done by David Shire, who um, at the time was obviously married to Francis Ford Coppola's uh, sister Talia, but like it's it's just mesmerizing and it's it, it from what i've read it's one of the first instances of they like didn't play it on set as such but they played it it was written before the film when like was filmed so they played it to the cast before they shot the scenes so they could get an idea of what the tone for that scene would be because i know that like francis ford coppola a lot of people will know, like, he creates these amazing, like, notebooks. Um, you can, I think you can buy it, like, there's a, a Godfather book, which is essentially, like, he got it from working, like, in stage, which is, like, the script plus two, essentially. And it's, like, everything that could, like, possibly get. And there's an amazing, uh, amazing audiobook version of it, which is Francis Ford Coppola and um, Joe Maglioni, the guy, Fat Tony from The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is just like amazing to listen to. So like, we've got Francis Ford Coppola and we've got Fat Tony from The Simpsons. <laughs> uh, uh, but like, yeah, they kind of go through like Francis Ford Coppola's notebook. And you could imagine like for this film, like being a 
good, a good note. And and I think I think they did they did sell one, but you had to spend like two hundred dollars and get a box of wine oh, wow. and the notebook. But that's something I'm not gonna do. Um, so leads me on to um possibly one of the hardest questions anyone could ever be asked to answer, which is which Coppola family member would you keep? But in doing so, you get rid of the filmography of every other family member, Rich. Mm. <laughs> um, I know this sounds fairly straight down the middle, but I would keep Francis Ford Coppola purely for this and The Godfathers. I think if... <sighs> This is the difficulty of the question is because I would lose Rocky IV. <laughs> um, but I think as a film fan, I think having, the I say the two Godfather films, obviously we keep the third two, but this, the, the conversation in those two, I think outweigh anything else for me. I, I think that that's the difficulty, that that's the... <laughs> the cost would be losing Rocky IV. And that's, the, that, that's the chalk and cheese. I mean, we're talking Prosecco and, and a fine red wine here, but um, yeah, I, uh, that's that's where I'd have to sit on that one. I, I hate myself, but that's, that's my truth. <laughs> well, if you look like Francis Ford Coppola has had one of the best decades of any filmmakers. So you look at the 1970s Francis Ford Coppola, the Godfather one and two, the conversation and apocalypse now. Like you would be very hard pressed to find a director who had a better decade, right? Yeah. I mean you get these questions every so often about actors having runs of films and, and you look you can look at Harrison Ford and uh, Eddie Murphy and, and people like that, but I think as as a you know, I mean you've got four films there and you know, I mean bear in mind as you said at the beginning, the conversation lost out of the Oscars to Godfather Part Two. You know, he's lost out to his own film. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure he, he had trouble sleeping that night, but it's just <laughs> that's what that's the levels we're talking about. You know, he put these together. You know, he's turned an amazing in the Godfather, he's turned an amazing story into two amazing films. And then with and he's done something creative as well with that, in the way that he's done the the flashbacks and you know, I joked about it recently that they should have done that with Return of the Jedi and we would have been saved the Star Wars prequels. But this is where, you know, and, and, and again, I'll always come to this film. And I know when you were asking which film of these I'd like to talk about, and this was the one that I wanted to do because this is the one that I feel, you know, a lot of people have seen The Godfather and, and I don't hear this one mentioned quite so much. And maybe I haven't been looking, but I just feel that, yeah, you know, this sits in that, group of four movies and it's almost like imagine you know this is the one that's probably get talked about the least of those four and this is arguably my favorite of the four um it's that good well there's a really interesting thing and i think like from research in the couple of family there's this thing of middle child syndrome throughout it like francis ford mm. coppola himself is a middle child and a lot of like the a lot of the Coppola's seem to just have three children and they have that wild middle child. But like um this is very much the wild middle child of 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 Francis Ford Coppola doing The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. And this is like the kind of I don't know, 
outlier but beautiful middle child between those because it is a film that can very much fall between the cracks and be forgotten about by a lot of people because they're like oh the godfather godfather part two it's like yeah the conversation is a film that very much needs to be on the table when you talk about like why francis ford coppola is and one of the like like to me i'm gonna say episode one i'm gonna say he definitely is one of the greatest film directors of all times like whether whether it's the work he's produced um we'll get on to jack at some point guys don't worry about that um <laughs> but like and the influence like not just in film in kind of pop culture in general like i'm sure i'm sure that like if you took out the godfather there would be a lot of hip hop music that like would not have a lot of references to go off of um so rich let me ask you the ultimate question that i'm trying to figure out on this podcast are the coppola family the greatest film family of all time i think if you're talking about a family and the the quality that they've produced in total i think when you look at film families that there's often a a small core whether it's a, a sort of a three two or three generations who've produced this one goes sideways as well mm-hmm. there's yeah. as you said you know that there's sisters there's cousins nephews you know that it goes in so many ways and then by marriage that extends as well of course then there's the chicken and egg situation you know at what point did they become part of the Coppola family but I think for you know this isn't just a linear run this is a dynasty Mm -hmm. yeah if you go beyond that this isn't you know I mean we mentioned before the Houstons or the Arquettes or the Baldwins let's not forget them um but you've got that breadth of, and it, there's more. There's there's filmmaking, there's acting, there's all the technical qualities, there's production, there's writing, there's music. All these things that that come together. This isn't just people who appear on screen and look really good or do it really well. There's so much they bring to it, and it goes beyond just a name. There, you know, a lot of them are there on merit. A lot of them have had the opportunity because of their name, but they've earned it and they've not just, you know, they're not there for no reason. They're there because they have, in most cases, a lot of talent. Yeah, and it's that thing that, like, getting it out from day one, though, it's like this thing that they've earned their stripes. Like, you look at Sophia Coppola, it's like, yeah, she probably got a few doors open to her because of who her dad was, but then she went on to prove herself. And it's like... Jason Schwartzman again would have had a lot of doors open to him because who he was, but like uh, he's still proving himself. Do you know what I mean? And it's like there's there's time and time again, and even to go back to Nicolas Cage, a, a, a person who turned his back essentially on the family by changing his name. And I totally understand the reasons for doing that. I think around the time he was in school, it would have been the time that the like in the in the 70s maybe like like so by the time he was kind of getting to the point of thinking about becoming an actor it was like i don't want to be associated with that name let's do 
something else and like yeah they're an industry into themselves um but before i let you go rich there's one question that i didn't send to you beforehand but i'm asking everyone on this podcast is what does bill murray say to scarlett johansson at the end of lost in translation um I'm hoping that to touch on another of my favourite films, it's not I Am Your Father. <laughs> that, uh, that would make it incredibly weird. Um, I just think I've seen that film quite recently. And even then, at the end of it, everyone just kind of went, oh. hmm. there was that kind of general querying in the cinema back when that was a thing. But uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't, I honestly couldn't tell. This is how mysterious it is. Um <laughs> Maybe we'll put in I Am Your Father just to uh, bring bring back some more Lucas to it. That would make things weird. Or he could be saying, he'd kill us if he had the chance. <laughs> um, we'll just have to play around with the audio of that. I've got a little gadget somewhere that should probably enhance that enough. Perfect. Well, Rich, where can people keep up to date with you and everything that's going on with Betamax Video Club? Um, basically available on all good and bad podcast apps, Spotify, uh, to search for BMX video clubs on Twitter, BMX pod, uh, Instagram, BMX video club. It's mostly a nostalgia gold mine of, uh, yes, look at this film. It came out on Betamax. Wasn't that weird? But also, uh, there are the odd pod plugs for podcasts of all ranges from better off dead all the way up to top gun and everything in between. And, uh, as most of my clientele seem to enjoy Bond films. So if you're into those. And there was also a very good episode early on about uh, Lethal Weapon, which uh, I recommend a lot of people check out. So, uh, Perfect. Yeah, very good guest on for that. Amazing. <laughs> Rich, thank you so much for helping me dot to dot some of these Coppola connections and talking about the conversation with me. And there we have it, the first episode of Copper Connections in the bank. Thank you very much once again to Rich Nelson for joining me on this journey. And that's the first vote for Yes, them being the greatest film family of all time. Be sure to check out Betamax Video Club, and especially that Lethal Weapon episode, as Rich mentioned. As for next week's episode, I will be joined by comedian Nathaniel Metcalf to talk about Christopher Coppola's comic book adaptation from the year 2000, G-Men from Hell. If you have noticed any glaring admissions in this episode, any Coppola connections we may have missed, please don't hesitate to get in touch on social media, which is Cajun Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd and Facebook. Or send an email to cagedinpod at gmail.com where you can send your voice notes with your opinions on the upcoming films. So do be sure to send those in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure that you rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast or whichever podcast platform you're listening to this on right now. As always, guys, I've been Petrus Patsilavus. I've been making some copper connections. You've been amazing. Bye-bye. 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Copa Connections, a Town Limery, Maine, franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.